I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And this is the truth of the matter. This is the podcast where we break down the policy issues of the day. Since the politicians are having their say, we will excuse them with respect and bring in the experts, many of them from CSIS, people who have been working these issues for years. No spin, no bombast, no finger pointing, just informed discussion. In today's episode of The Truth of the Matter, I'm flying solo as Bob Schieffer is out of town. To get to the truth of the matter, I've invited my colleagues, Sarah Ladislau and Kevin Book from CSIS to talk about just what's happened in the oil markets. Sarah, tell us, oil prices have been falling nearly 50% in the last couple of weeks. What are the factors that are driving this decline? Yeah, thanks, Andrew. You know, I mean, the oil market is subject to the same kind of downward economic pressure that we've seen in the rest of the economy. You know, pandemic economics are a brutal, brutal thing. And uh, we're, you know, experiencing a world in which uh, not only has oil demand declined, but is projected the growth year over year is projected to decline as well. And so that means uh, we've got a shrinking market for commodity. And in addition to that, it was a sector that for the last several years had been oversupplied. There was just lots of oil in the market because of increasing U.S. production and just the availability of supply around the world. And so OPEC, uh, led by Saudi Arabia and Russia, had been curtailing uh, their own production for the better part of the last three years or so to try and restore balance to the market. Uh, when they were faced with uh, the sort of, you know, really dire demand uh, outlook that the coronavirus uh, environment uh, presented to them, they weren't able to come to an agreement about how to deal with that. And so the OPEC deal that had uh, had been withholding, you know, a, a million and a half, or two million barrels off the market collapsed. And, uh, and it, as a result of that, the, the Saudis decided that they were going to, to go for market share, which essentially means they dropped the price that they were selling their crude at. They said they were going to ramp up production and, and the Russians and other OPEC producers followed suit. So that means you've got a market where everybody's pumping out supply and there's no demand to suck it up and nobody sees an end to when that, that demand uh, will turn around yet. And so it's really hard to see where the, where the prices will bottom out. And, and that's what people are now sort of colloquially calling an oil price war. The status of a demand shock to the downside and a supply shock to the upside is it's about the worst case scenario you could come up with. The problem with the price future for a lot of the producers right now has to do with the the fact that the oil inventories are building fast and without any consumption to pull those inventories down, the oil that comes out of the ground is less valuable on a marginal basis. Basically, oil comes out of two places, right? It comes out of the ground or it comes out of inventories. And so what that means is that the the price is going to face downward pressure as inventories continue to build until either supply rationalizes dramatically which, you know, that's a, that's, I think, another topic uh, in itself, or demand comes back to life, which seems like it's going to be a while. And inventories take a while to burn off. Uh, OPEC, when they started their curtailment with Russia at the start of 2017, was trying to get below the, the five-year average level of inventories to try to give some price stability. Uh, when we're adding, you know, an imbalance of five, six, seven million barrels per day right now to inventories, uh, we're pushing back that, that recovery point a lot every single day. 
So what's been the impact on the U.S. supply and what kind of impact should we be feeling as consumers and, you know, just people in the United States who are watching this this price war? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think the knee jerk reaction of sort of trying to make lemonade out of lemons from the president was to sort of herald, you know, the onset of low oil prices as being for the U.S. economy. But that's a pretty mixed story these days. The U.S. is a very large producer of oil and natural gas. And so uh, what used to just be an unequivocally good story for the United States when oil prices were low because consumers would save money is actually a very mixed story, probably worse off for the communities and the industries that produce oil and oil-related products. And so the, the hit is actually um, uh, is, is actually worse in this scenario than in scenarios in the past, both because we're a large producer of these goods now, and then also because people can't really take advantage of the low prices. I mean, you can't drive around right now, so you're, you know, you're not going to buy gasoline no matter how cheap it gets. So there's not that sort of stimulative impact that you'd normally get from a low price environment. On the producer side, maybe I'll uh, have see if Kevin wants to add on that. I mean, we've seen a, a lot of impact so far, not necessarily in terms of overall production levels, but certainly the very sort of diverse set of U.S. suppliers who are uh, who are producing U.S. oil supplies are are feeling the pinch and and really trying to work on their strategies to see how they can survive this downturn. But maybe Kevin. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, the the rationalization that comes in a low price environment is usually painful for a lot of producers, but it's also got a salutary side story, which is that if you don't look at specific producers and you look at the industry, the vacillation between a high price and a low price has actually been very good for U.S. production. High prices stimulated innovation, and it brought us you know the gains in production that came from hydraulic fracturing of horizontal wells, and low prices have brought discipline. Uh, in this particular case, though, when, again, the price falls so low so quickly, the, the challenges for producers are, are abrupt. Uh, wells get shut in quickly. Workforces get cut quickly. It's not a graceful decline necessarily. Uh, and uh, the, the impact to the economy as a whole, you know, this is cold comfort, I think, when prices are high. But the multiplier you get from upstream investment in our economy as a whole is bigger just in general because we're a low savings economy than the savings you would get at the service island from consumption. So that's been true for a while. Like the net benefit, just because we've been producing so much and investing so much, has been more positive at high prices than low prices. But at low prices, the, the negatives are twofold. You know, if the rest of the economy were booming, then this low price would be a wonderful stimulus. And on the recovery side of this, I hope we all optimistically look forward to the recovery side of this. Uh, the low price for probably some continuing time will work as a stimulus, but that lack of upstream investment will prevent some of the growth that we've seen over the last decade. Well, let me ask you both. What are some of the kinds of things that are either being done or being proposed to bolster U.S. oil producers? Yeah, this is sort of a divided picture, right? Because I think, you know, when you think about U.S. oil producers, most people think immediately of the large producers, right? They think about the name brands that they know of and, and, and some of the places that they fill up their, their, their cars to get gasoline. But the reality is the industry is much more diverse than that, right? So there's, you know, thousands of, you know, small companies, there's medium sized companies. And so there's been a, a lot of, you know, a lot of questions about 
how you actually support the industry and who wants that support, right? So, I mean, the the oil and gas industry sort of came out early and said, you know, we're not asking for a bailout. That's not what we're looking for. But uh, at the same time, you know, they 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 do count as sort of one of the struggling industries in the context of who's getting harmed in this uh, in this environment. So uh, early on, their their the first move was to sort of cancel what was to be a sale uh, of uh, some some oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, and now announce that the the U.S. government is going to purchase uh, 77 million barrels of uh, crude to put into the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Again, it's not expected to have a, a huge uh, upward impact on prices. But if you're one of the companies from whom they're they're buying this crude, it probably um, matters to you. The Secretary of Energy, Dan Buryette, came out yesterday saying, you know, this is something that they see as being good for energy security and filling up the stockpile, but also a confidence booster, right? Really trying to say, you know, the U.S. government sees value in investing in uh, in 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 purchasing, you know, U.S. oil production. It's sort of what we can do in terms of uh, ready, ready-made tools to to sort of you know take some supply off the market. It just pales so drastically in comparison to the amount of oil that is being uh, pledged to be put on the market and put on the market by Saudi and other uh, very large producers. There's some more creative suggestions. Maybe I'll leave uh, some of those to to Kevin to go through. Uh, thanks, Sarah. So maybe just to break it down into five categories. There's the U.S. government spending that Sarah mentioned. And, you know, there's an even bigger proposal. It's not clear how serious it was that Secretary of the Treasury Mnuchin put out yesterday to just buy oil that's in commercial storage, you know, 10 or $20 billion of that. That would have a much more significant price effect to take that commercial oil off the market. So so step one or plan one could be commercial uh, purchases or SPR purchases. Plan two, uh, tariffs or embargoes to block imports have come up. Some of the producers have advocated for that. Uh, not all of them, and I think a lot of refiners would be very concerned about that because they import oil for the refineries. The third is to try to slow or stop production somewhere else uh, by maximizing sanctions pressure on some producer nations. The fourth is to try to get the OPEC plus partners back together again, get the band back together again. And, uh, you know, that negotiation, uh, at a sovereign level, uh, was complicated when it was happening in Vienna at the start of the month. I think it'll be even more complicated right now. Uh, but there's, there's still some effort being devoted to that. And then the fifth one, uh, you have probably seen some articles about this involve U.S. uh, producers asking the Texas government to intervene on their behalf and curtail production for the first time since the Texas Railroad Commission, the uh, sort of awkwardly named oil regulator in the state of Texas, uh, because oil used to move by rail, uh, hasn't done this in, in a long time. But they did once enforce strict controls on production, and some companies are asking them to consider doing it again. Uh, even more of a twist in the story is to maybe do it in cooperation with some of the other big producing nations in the world. Uh, so five very sort of broad categories categories and many flavors within them. Uh, it's safe to say there's no lack of innovation or inventiveness here, but each of these is a pretty, you know, pretty complicated story. Well, at the heart of this is a Russia-Saudi Arabia standoff, correct? Yes. Tell me about that. 
Yeah, so I think there's a lot of speculation about the sort of underlying motivations of both Saudi Arabia and Russia. And quite frankly, you know, trying to think about how much of this was a pre-thought out oil price war versus sort of a mismanaged OPEC meeting that resulted in the need to sort of save face and, and devote a different strategy here. I mean, there's probably a lot of truth to all of the different component pieces of this story. You know, Russia and Saudi Arabia came together to manage markets through OPEC because they kind of had to, right? I mean, OPEC alone couldn't didn't have enough weight in the oil markets to to be able to curtail production in a way that would that would material affect prices. And so they had this marriage of convenience with Russia. I don't think it was ever sort of a deep geostrategic alignment. And it was sort of bound to fall apart at some point once their divergence of interests came closer to the front. And it was actually kind of interesting to watch as the run up to the OPEC meeting, the Russians were signaling quite heavily that they weren't going to go ahead with the deeper cuts that Saudi Arabia was proposing. The question now is, you know, what will bring them all back together? You know, is there... Is there genuinely a Russian strategy to make sure that U.S. Uh, uh, tight oil production, U.S. Uh, oil production is harmed in, in this impasse? Because, you know, it, it gets kind of old if you're, you know, Saudi Arabia and Russia and the rest of the members of OPEC, if you're consistently cutting back your production and the United States just continues to produce, you know, wh- why would you want to keep doing that? That doesn't, you know, seem like it's it's in your interest, even though you're the one who wants sort of a higher a price threshold. Um, it, you know, is is this uh, is this something about you know? There's a lot of people, particularly people in Congress, who are are, are putting pressure on the Saudi, saying, "Listen, you've always said you're the source of stability in the market. Right now, you look like a big source of instability. Could you please?" Uh, remedy your behavior. I think it's, you know, it's really hard to sort of divine where everybody's uh, core instincts come here. There's one thing we know, which is all three economies are going to be harmed, the United States, Russia and Saudi Arabia, over this kind of oil price war. So if there's an alignment of interests, the timing and the depth and the details of that are, are, are sort of, you know, subject to some debate. But but, you know, aligning everyone's core interest into some sort of oil market stability, whatever that looks like, seems to be the way to 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 bring things together. And it does seem like everybody has made signals that uh, and certainly this week with the with the president saying that he'd intervened diplomatically when he thought the time was right. Certainly does seem like there's uh, there's going to be interest in putting Humpty Dumpty back together again. The question is, will that be within the OPEC context? Uh, or not, because uh, as Kevin said, you know, there may be some voices in Texas who want to see curtailment and don't mind the idea of an OPEC plus plus, which would be OPEC plus Russia plus the United States, question mark, um, participating in a in a curtailment program. But some people really don't like that idea very much. So and I think the administration might be count am- among them. So uh, so how that deal comes together, I think, is the question of the hour. So what's being done right now? on the diplomatic level to end this price war? Well, the, uh, there are two fronts. Uh, you know, officially diplomacy lies in the executive purview. And uh, our understanding is that there is some degree of, of diplomatic engagement planned both bilaterally with the kingdom and also uh, through the auspices of the G20, of which the, the kingdom is now the, the rotating president. The other side of that, though, as I think we've seen in recent years, is that Congress sometimes takes matters into its own hands. 
uh, the passage of the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act in 2016, over the veto of President Obama at the time, the passage of the Countering America's Adversaries Through Sanctions Act in August of 2017, uh, again with opposition, although not a veto, from the Trump administration. Those are good precedents for what could happen if a head of steam were to gather on Capitol Hill. Now, I don't think you're going to find this sort of unanimity of senators on both sides of the aisle rushing to defend the oil industry. Uh, some of them probably haven't been briefed on that multiplier thing I mentioned, and some of them have some fairly strong environmental opposition. Uh, but there were 13 senators who on Monday wrote a, a letter to the crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, and said, you know, we do really want you to think about uh, your stability role. And it seemed like a thinly veiled threat. Uh, why? Well, because 12 of those 13, with the sole exception of Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee Chairman Lisa Murkowski from Alaska, the other 12 had generally voted with the kingdom on most of these divisive votes, uh, things like undercutting military uh, arms sales to the kingdom uh, that, that didn't pass, but but for you know a relatively small number of, of dissenters. Uh, and also the, uh, the, the things like uh, the, the, the votes concerning uh, the censure uh, or, or sanctions as a result of the killing of, uh, of, of a journalist in October of, of 2018. Uh, wow, time passes so quickly, right? Uh, October of, of 2018. Uh, so, I mean, there we are. You know, there's a, there's a threat there from Congress, and it's not, uh, it's not clear that, that that threat will be persuasive. But on multiple fronts, I think there's, there's some pressure being brought to bear. I will just close with saying that the, the notion of sanctioning Russia you know, it, it, it's happening. It's been going on since uh, uh, since 2014, the fourth quarter of 2014, for Ukraine-related uh, sanctions, and also more recently in the context of Venezuela. Uh, it comes with a really big downside, which is that Russia's main oil uh, sales target is Europe, our ally in the transatlantic alliance. So uh, not such an easy thing to, to throw around, uh, although it has come up also in discussions. What do you think? Is this the end of OPEC, or is this the beginning of the U.S. and Russia joining OPEC? Yeah, I think, it, you know, history has taught us anything. OPEC is a difficult thing to kill, right? I mean, it's uh, it goes through periods where it's more or less influential than others. But I think that there's always this, you know, there's there's a history there. There's I, I think one of the things we've got to kind of keep in mind is that, um, yes, a lot of what's going on in the oil market right now is about market dynamics and trying to figure out how to to, to sort of bolster, you know, oil prices and, and market stability, depending on, you know, who you are in this conversation. But a lot of it is also a, a little bit about ego and it's, and it's also about sort of, you know, solidarity within different groups. And so the drive to keep OPEC together, whether it's in a, the way that we've seen it over the last three years, um, you know, it, it, it is distinct in that it doesn't have the United States in it. And that can be attractive in the sense that, uh, that it is, it can serve as sort of a counterfoil to, to the United States in the market, which I think is, is attractive to some folks, right? I mean, this is sort of a big question here, which is what's going to be the most attractive glide path to getting some of the big producers to sit down and talk with each other? Is it going to be in the OPEC context, which the United States will have a very hard time uh, politically being able to 
to coordinate with OPEC, given our, our view on cartels, despite how sometimes confusing we are about how we engage with them. G20, I, I think, may offer a, a more interesting pathway in the sense that, you know, if, if this is really about oil market stability, then it's not just a pr- production question. And so I could see Saudi Arabia taking advantage of uh, their leadership position as in the G20 um, now to say, hey, listen, you know, this is going to take not only some sort of agreement not to flood the market, right? And that, you know, sort of by definition, that could look like some sort of, you know, curtailment agreement uh, in spirit, if not in, in literal terms. Um, but it could also look like, you know, some agreement to buy crude off the market, right? I mean, you're filling SPRs in China and India and the United States and some of these other programs could also just be in the interest of of seeking out oil market stability. I, I think the spoiler here is that sort of transition away from OPEC as the nexus of this conversation into the G20 requires the United States to like working with the G20, which we don't tend to do right now. And so so to me, that's one of the big open questions. But, but regardless of where that conversation takes place, I think OPEC will have a life after this. It's just a question of of what what that life will be and, and what its core mandate will be. What can be done to bolster or stimulate demand in the U.S. and around the world? And how long is weak demand you know, expected to last? I know those are tough questions to answer, but I suppose we have to start to try to address them. Economic recovery stimulates demand better than anything else. I mean, the, the big use of oil remains transportation fuels. And so the shutdown of transportation is devastating to demand. If you think about what the U.S. represents just by itself, about nine and a half million barrels per day out of a 100 million barrel per day oil market goes to U.S. gasoline alone. Uh, half of that, about 4.8 million barrels per day, is commuters. Well, commuters have mostly stopped commuting, and now we're seeing broader shutdowns even of, of people who had been commuting uh, in some of the lockdown states. Add in the jet fuel, another six million barrels per day, uh, that uh, the world uses to travel around and travel slowing. Uh, these things are awfully hard to rekindle until there's a, you know, a, a solution to the virus itself uh, and it's run its course, uh, hopefully with a, a minimum of, of casualties. Uh, and then, you know, if you look at the logistics use of crude for, for transportation of freight and material, uh, that also is a huge part that could get compressed, not necessarily because of, of some of the same. I mean, a lot of things are still moving on the seas and on the roads, freight and, and shipment wise. But because uh, increasingly countries are sort of moving in t- towards inwardly preserving the goods they have for themselves. This is a this is a pretty big deglobalization accelerant. Uh, and so uh, here's what I'll give you on that uh, that front as sort of the an ironic and maybe temporary demand stimulus. If this event Andrew ends up sort of accelerating what we've thought of as a deglobalization trend, and I think you can see a lot of signs that it might, then bringing things home, essentially producing at home what used to be supplied by distributed value chains, means a very energy-intensive process of creating things anew. That, from a demand perspective, could be very stimulative. Uh, the, the whole world essentially going into a, a global divorce and needing its own separate apartment is a demand driver. Uh, the long run story, though, sounds like inefficiency. You know, doing things undistributed uh, locally uh, isn't necessarily a good way to grow demand as fast as it has been growing. But so, you know, work it out. Uh, solve the 
solve the, the disease first, the economy next, and uh, deglobalization, unfortunately. And then maybe you get some fairly big demand pop. Kevin's given a, a really provocative way of thinking about the way the world might put itself back together again that not many people have picked up on. So I think that that's really interesting and, and bears uh, worth thinking about. In the more immediate sense, I mean, I think that the real difficulty here is not as much the oil price war. It's really this idea that we just don't know, you know, when demand is going to come back. You know, every week it seems like projections are just more severe. And it's it's largely tied to the fact that we really don't understand the trajectory of the coronavirus and, and what uh, recovery even looks like in economies that have recovered, right? Is this going to be something we revisit for a period of 18 months uh, from time to time? And so, so I, we don't even know sort of what the shape of the recovery will look like. And I think that that makes talking of, about sort of stimulus uh, difficult, but it does appear, you know, in, in most economies around the world, stimulus is going to do what it's supposed to do uh, for the time being, which is help, you know, uh, communities that are harmed to be whole and to be able to weather the crisis. And then we're going to get into a longer term conversation about, okay, well, what do we do to stimulate a recovery? And, um, and I think that this is one of those questions you're starting to see people really sort of position around, which is the other sort of uh, thing hanging out there for the the oil sector, which is, you know, even before this, uh, the, the, we were having a conversation about an energy transition to lower carbon fuels and uh, for the purposes of dealing with climate change. And and so, you know, a lot of people thinking about if you're going to do a stimulus program that's going to be broad and affect the economy, whether it's in China or here in the United States, that's that's geared towards innovation and infrastructure and and uh and and thinking thinking over the longer term how do you do that do you do it in a way that sort of just puts industries back together or as you're seeing sort of negotiated over the airlines do you do you uh, help support certain industries and sectors by also demanding that they do things that have some sort of environmental reform to them? Do you think about only doing green stimulus, uh, very typical to the conversation we had in 2009 with the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act? So I think we will get into a stimulus conversation. And the big question for me is, you know, how much how bold will that be? Uh, will it really just be about, you know, things being, quote unquote, shovel ready and getting getting the economy moving again, which will broadly be positive for uh, uh, for uh, for energy demand? Um, or is it going to be about sort of reshaping uh, the, the the way that the energy sector comes back? And it, it's, it's a really open question. And the, the interesting thing is the timing for that conversation is really uncertain. And so we're going to have an election here in the United States. This conversation is taking place in a lot of different economies around the the world. And we're going to have to track all of those stimulus efforts because they could have a, a, a pretty significant impact on uh, on energy demand and, and supply going forward. I, I want to ask you guys one more thing, and this, this might be really obvious, but with so many people not driving, not flying, not traveling, has this had a positive impact on the environment or are we not feeling any of that yet? Well, I guess there's two answers. Uh, neither of them, by the way, is probably sufficient uh, to, to solve some of the questions that Sarah mentioned, the, the, the transition questions and the climate change questions. Uh, but as far as the, the local emissions of, of non-greenhouse gases, the things that make people sick because they're conventional pollutants we've always thought about, they're easily tracked from space. Uh, with people staying at home, uh, the emissions from transportation have fallen tremendously. And so if we were to continue in this fashion, but for the economic and everything else that would, uh, economic risk and everything else that would attend, uh, this would be, you know, fairly air cleaning. 
from a greenhouse gas perspective, the answer is a little different because the, the issue for greenhouse gases in the upper atmosphere isn't so much what's emitted today, but the total stock of gases that are changing the way the climate operates. And so uh, a down year is an interesting blip, sort of an asterisk in the statistical record, but it doesn't actually change the, the overall dynamics very much because we're talking about 100 plus year climate effects. Yeah, and I would just add to that really quickly because I, I completely agree with everything Kevin said. I, I think one of the interesting things you're seeing happen, particularly, you know, within the, the sort of climate change and policy aware kind of community is, you know, one of the difficult things about climate policy has been getting sort of the social support to, to be able to take steps that could be difficult, right? So changing, uh, changing fuels or, um, you know, putting in the kinds of policies, uh, in place to, to navigate your way through a transition to lower carbon energy sources. You know, a lot of this, this, uh, the reality of like a deeply decarbonized environment will require some behavior change. And, and there's always been sort of an open question as to whether or not the population could do those types of things. It's really hard to convince people to spend a dollar today to save six down the line in preventative measures. And that's as true uh, for the, the sort of global health industry as it is uh, in thinking about sort of damages from climate change. So there's a lot of you know, speculation and wondering as to whether or not this experience, you know, understanding what happens when you you don't plan for crises well, even the crises you knew were going to come eventually at some point, uh, whether we just need to take preparedness much more seriously. And it's an open question as to whether or not we're going to we're going to take take those types of things more seriously. But I, I think that that's another, you know, tie in between this conversation and uh, and and the pandemic that we're experiencing today. Sarah. Kevin, thank you for helping us get to the truth of the matter on this oil price war. I know in the weeks and days to come, we'll be talking more and we'll have you back on truth of the matter. Thanks again. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog. 